Let me pray. Let's frame the, the hour or the 20 minutes. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this time, for a chance just to to talk and interact, um, take the uh, conversation before and now what follows, and hold it in your hands, transforming it in a way that this would be your work done in your way, not lacking for anything that is needed. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been in John, looking at these and-then moments, and we... Uh, let me just kind of move this quickly and keep this very much a conversation. Um, I am thinking this morning, as a preface into John 18, of faith working itself through love. It's a phrase that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 5. Um, For there is now no longer, if I can remember it, there is now no longer any circumcision or uncircumcision, only faith which works itself through love. So, one of the ways I've been chasing this, and this is very much in what we've been just talking about, Mary. Um, faith is, uh, this is not a working definition of faith, but it's one that I'm kind of trying to string through in the last two weeks and finishing today. Faith involves that, that at once that conviction of and an awareness of our need for, for something different, for change, for something, whatever it is, is not what I want it to be. Um, if you didn't have any need to change, you wouldn't need any faith. That's probably the best way to look at it in the negative. So the places where I come to the end and I realize that I need some change or better when that awareness is thrust upon me, that passive tense that I was just saying, uh, that's, that's what the Bible begins to approach when it talks about faith, the noun form and the, fer- the verb believe, to believe uh, to have faith is this this awareness of change. And then, so then there's love. And a working way of love in this sense is um, the movement of one person uh, or the movement of another towards me. Uh, I said last week um, or two weeks ago that love within the aspect of control, the quid pro quo idea, isn't really love because that's not really the motion of a person towards me. That's the motion of a contract towards me. That's the motion of karma back to me. That's the motion of myself back to me. Since I, then you. So really that's just me coming back into myself. And that's not love. Love is the movement of another towards me, especially uh, and most pointedly when I, in who I am, is in fact a repellent of some sort. You know, 25% deet to a, to a mosquito. Um, when I repel uh, another because of who I am and what I have done, and yet they still move towards me. That then is faith, a decisive change from what is because of what was. There is no try, only do. Um, faith in something substantial, that the problems of the world, which is really to say my problem, is in fact... Uh, does have a decisive and historical event attached to it, and that's the cross. Faith, this need for change, working itself through love, the motion of another towards me, that's God's movement, um, forcible movement towards a sinner, uh, which produces change. You could even say, um, I heard this phrase this week, God's movement towards a sinner in fact, does not destroy morality, in other words, behavior, because that's often what we're looking for, um, but it, in fact, produces it, and that's the paradox of it all. Um, 
and it works in an echo or it works in a shadow in two, two small ways and then I'll pause and, and let any feedback and then we'll look at John 18. Um, say, with, uh, say with a child, um, not that this is autobiographical at all, of course, um, <laughs> but with a child, when a child is being uh, selfish or uh, angular or really, you know, a child is being childish, um, uh, and they, they're, they're doing what they're doing. And, it's, and it works especially when they realize when they've been caught in the middle of a lie or caught with something. They're actually not just sorry that they got caught, but they actually, you know, know that what they did was wrong. Um, you know, true repentance, sorrow, uh, that's where it's best, and that's the proper exercise of the law. Then when I move, as God moves towards me, in fact, in my repellent, when... It would be. It was. It was against our family rule, and it was wrong, et cetera, and so forth. And then I still move. That's faith working itself through love. That's the. That's grace in practice. That's the movement of one, the father or the mother, the parent, towards the child, uh, which produces that which it desires. Um, that's the election of love, in other words. Um, I don't, in a quid pro quo relationship, well, you broke the rules, so you're going to have, you're going to pay the piper, uh, but I move opposite of it. There it is. Or another, say in a marriage, again, no autobiographical part, but when I'm irritable or tired or, um, uh, you know, just self-centered uh, because, you know, I have a right to be because it's been a long day, et cetera, and so forth, uh, and then something happens, and I start rehearsing uh, in my head all my justifications for why this should be or shouldn't be, etc., and so forth. And I'm getting ready to either to implode or to explode. Uh, you know, an implosion is just I'm going to take it all in. It looks great on the outside. Or an explosion is just the escalation of anger where you start to get into a conflict. And then somebody that I live with comes over and just puts her hand on my hand. Changes everything. It's faith working itself through love. I'm in a rut. I am stuck in my own sort of cycle, and it's just ramping up with all sorts of of, uh, of words which I'm telling myself, which are all you know true in the sense that they're self-justifying, but, but completely uh, 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 completely hollow attempts at my being my own God. Uh, and it's just a simple touch, touch of a hand. That's, that's, that's all it can be. And what is that? It's an and-then moment. And then another moved towards me when, in fact, I should have been a repellent. Uh, and that's, that, changes, that changes things. That's faith. That's the change. And you believe that's somehow the Holy Spirit acting? I do. Through another human? I do. That's what I would call an echo or a mirror, a shadow. Shadow, shadow not a mirror. Of, uh, of what is truly true in the actual reality of God demonstrating his love as such, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. The yet sinners, when I am yet repelling him, good, righteous, and holy God, just in all of his ways, um, cannot abide sin, uh, and yet he moves towards me when he had every reason to say, nope, I can't look at that. I won't look at... at uh, at sin because I'm holy and you know oil and vinegar don't mix you know just and sin don't mix um, so I won't see it it's in fact when God not only sees it but becomes it that's the cross event God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God that's theology working itself out in a real way 
where um, God moving towards another, a sinner, uh, produces change. Um, and that's the end-then moments. That's where all this is kind of headed. So, so comments on that before we then go into John 18? It's a pretty cool chapter. So. You know, I agree, and I, I thought about this, I think, since we first started this. The and-then moments or the Johnny Cash moments when you have a turning, it seems like it is, I can't speak to everyone, but maybe you can tell me, is oftentimes brought about through another person, mm-hmm. the bishop through Jean Valjean. Absolutely. And you know, to Javert through. Is there a percentage that you know of? Is there a biblical percentage somewhere? How many times does it happen through another person, uh, or through just you know, I think you said Johnny Cash out in the woods. Yeah. Um, I don't. It's interesting. That's that no, I but it's a good scientific <laughs> question. And what's the percentage? I would. Yeah, it's, it's usually relationships. I mean, when it comes to the core, it's relationships. It's not It's not an idea. It's an idea with flesh on, meaning my, my wife, my child, my friends, somebody I don't know who spurns me, and still that sets me off. Um, it's, it's another. That's who we are. We're wired for those kind of relationships. And there's lots of really cool, you know, secular research that's going on right now. The woman who was here a few weeks ago... Brene Brown is doing this. Um, Sherry Turkle, which I've used both of them as examples before. I mean, so that that is where it happens. Now, it can also be institutions and others personified. So it's still a relationship of myself to my job or even to the bank. You know, the bank did me wrong. You know, as if that, the bank, you know, bank doesn't have any feelings, but but we, we put that in there. And so it's definitely relationships the way we are. Um... Because God is a person. The passability of God um, is an important part here, where God comes to me as a person, and, and, uh, and I move into him as a person. That union with Christ, it is a big deal, that Obi-Wan thing that you're talking about. Yeah, I can go that far. Um, you know, I get a little bit nervous with Gnosticism and all that comes around. But yeah, that's right. That's the, that's the mystic union that we experience in Christ. Um, that we, that our lives are hidden in Him, and as such, we are completely safe um, and completely secure, and I can completely and and without any reservation whatsoever say that I am hidden in Him. Uh, I know that my Redeemer liveth, uh, and I'm secure in my salvation. What's often called the doctrine of assurance, which I believe in 100%. Um, so, yeah. It's relationships. You want to say something, Gretchen? Well, this is so. where I get in trouble, and, and this tells you more about me. But it's when you're, when, uh, for an example, with a child, and and there's and the child has done something wrong, and you're and like, and I am instead of coming down with the law, I'm extending grace. But if I'm doing it. In order to get a certain response. response, then it's not really grace. But see, that's where I run into trouble because I'm trying to extend the grace um, with with a you know with a preconceived notion of what I want their response to be. Yeah. So when their response isn't what I want it to be, then I'm angry at grace. Or not worry then about. it's double down. So it gets hard. It gets hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, at times, I would say, 
At times, I think we see it and experience it purely. The best examples, and it doesn't happen often, is when uh, yeah, I don't want to say any, I don't want to betray any confidence in my own children. Um, but when they when they when they really do know they've been wrong, that's that's the law. The law is good, right, and holy. It does something. It's not sort of the ethical. Um, Code. I mean, the New Testament has a different description of the law that I would want to sort of really highlight and emphasize. Um, the, the law is given to, to crush and to kill and to prepare and to point towards Christ. Um, and so that's what that's what repentance looks like. Um, and repentance, it's, it's a weird thing. Uh, and we get this in our confession. Our, a child will say, oh my God, I, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to go that far. They realize they crossed the line, and 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 yeah, in a certain way, they're they're sad because they got caught, but they're also a little bit scared. And then you move in grace. The gospel follows uh, the law. Grace follows judgment. And then they um. And then they're really sorry, because then, what Thomas Cramner captured in the absolution, where he says, "And now may you be given true repentance and amendment of life." and the grace and the consolation of the Holy Spirit. That's after I've confessed. So I've, I've I said, okay, I got caught, I did it wrong. And then Christ moves towards me in the form of the priest and says, my son, everything I've had is always yours. And he absolves me of my wrong. The fruit from that, the movement of another, of Christ to me, in that sense, through the minister, then produces that very thing which, which is desired. True repentance. So in a certain sense, the other was a false repentance. Now, I thought it was real, but I had no idea of the true truth of that grace given. And so it works out precisely in the relationship with a, with a sibling, with a, with a wife, with a husband, with a child. Um, does it happen all the time? Not often. In my experience, it, it, it does happen. Uh, I... I look for those moments. I look for the moments to extend grace when that type of brokenness is present. And to the best that I can with the sight that I've been given, to not tinge it with law, to not tinge it with, okay, I'm doing this because I want you to have a teaching moment. I want you to digest this and sort of become the person that I'm dreaming that you're going to become. Because <laughs> that's, 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 that's not it. That I actually do it. Um, and give it, and then, you know, God's got to be in there somewhere. So, Virginia, were you going to say something? Oh, it was back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I know. So sorry. Sir. Being spiritual being inspires then physical being. And um, at least that's sometimes how I understand us, that we are really spiritual beings. We have to be filled, yes. Yeah. But we were created before we were born as spiritual beings. Yeah. And so those moments when another person has the Holy Spirit to share or it happens, those moments that turn change are um, not so unusual. Yeah. They can come anytime. Those and thens, they do come sort of and in micro ways and in macro ways. And, so. and I like what you said, that true repentance comes after the grace that you've received. It. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, and there the verbs become come a lot because we're just approaching it whether I've received it or it's been done to me or I swallowed it or it was force fed to me or whatever um, 
you know, we're just approaching. We're trying to describe something that actually is. So, uh, in a certain sense, words matter, but in another sense, they don't matter because they're just the words are just describing something which actually is. So, my failure to communicate. <laughs> what we have here is a failure. To, my failure to communicate. Really, in that sense, I'm free. It doesn't matter because what actually is is what matters. So let's look at the story of Malchus. We'll get this far, I think, because um, it is kind of a fun story, and it begins this. So um, this is the Gospel of John, and this is how John describes the, uh, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the Synoptic Gospels, they describe Jesus going off um, by himself to pray, taking Peter, James, and John, sort of the three consistently, he does that. And he says, wait here uh, while I go over there and pray. And Jesus withdraws himself. I think it's Luke that says, a stone's throw away, and he prays, Father, um, uh, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me tomorrow. And he prayed that three times, and Luke adds in, he prayed so fervently that he sweated blood, etc., and so forth. And he comes back, and he finds the disciples each time, Peter, James, and John, sleeping. That's the story here in John, but notably, which is why John is not typically, it's not a, a synoptic gospel, because John usually takes different takes on the same events. And so that's where we are. Um, sort of on the night of the betrayal. Um, that's where we're going to read John's account of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. It's pretty different. Judas doesn't kiss him as he does in the synoptics. Um, Jesus is definitely in charge. Remember, this is the one where I uh, said earlier that Jesus says, no one, no one takes my life, um, uh, but I lay it down of my own accord. For if I lay it down, I may take it up again. And he is the author of his death and his life because he retains the authority as the author over life and death. And so that's going to be the John that we see here in the gospel. And so it says in John 18:1, when Jesus had spoken these words, where am I going? Um, uh, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so just to talk about this for a few minutes. When Jesus has spoken these words, these are his prayers, um, if you remember uh, in, in John um, uh, 17 especially, sort of the, the longest prayer, recorded prayers of Jesus, and that's what he's that's just picking it up. I'm going to move quickly past that. Though. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden. Now, if you grew up in Jerusalem, you would immediately know what that was. You crossed, you know, Green Springs and went over and, you know, whatever. And you would like, oh yeah, that's where the garden is, the Garden of Gethsemane. And also interesting, um, I'd forgotten this until I was preparing this week. This is right at the time of Passover. Now, it's really amazing. And I think I'm, I'm preaching in the uh, Lenten series and my, my sermon is going to have a lot to do with this, I think, Jesus being the Lamb of God. But at the Passover, um, this is the, the time of the year when... Uh, the Jews celebrated the Passover of, of uh, and, the, and the rescue of the people Israel, where they smeared blood on the, the doorpost of the, um, of the houses, and the angel of death passed over all of those, those houses. And so blood, huge deal. 
Um, how huge a deal, William Barclay had said that it was recorded some 30 or 40 years after um, Jesus died, just at the time there was a recorded instance of, of how many lambs were slaughtered in the Passover week. 256,000 sheep slaughtered. That's just the sheep. There have been some pigeons and some bulls and some other things too. But 256,000, and each time... The priest would go up and, and take the lamb, and they would pour all the blood. It's very gross. Just pour the blood on the altar. It just splats and goes, and the altar would have this this uh, this hole, like a tube, basically, which then would run, sort of in an aqueduct, out, and it would spill into to what? To this brook, to the Kidron Brook. And so when they crossed the Kidron at the time of Passover... Quite possibly, it was stained with blood. 256,000 sheep. That blood doesn't run out quickly. And so it's just all that prefigurement of, because uh, it would be the night before he was being arrested and he's going to be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And so he crosses over where there was a garden. And now this is definitely a preaching point, uh, because we're not sure that John actually meant this, but, but a garden. A garden. A garden. Where do we know about a garden in the Bible? The Garden of Eden, where there evil invaded and stole from the first Adam, uh, as it were, the, um, the will of God. That's not really true. Um, God's not dualistic, and it's like, oh, dang, I wish that didn't happen. That's not really true. But the first Adam uh, was met by evil in the Garden of Eden. And here, as Paul describes Christ as the second Adam in a garden, the second Adam invades evil because Jesus is definitely coming. It would have been a walled-off garden, you know, a place of the rich, and so you would have gone through a gate, and you know, not just sort of an open field. And so it was definitely there with real intent. He went in, uh, the second Adam invaded uh, and met evil in the person of Judas in a real way. And so there's definitely sort of the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, the second Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew his place. There is not an instance where when Judas is described, it's not followed with the parenthetical phrase, who betrayed him. John, the youngest disciple, just couldn't get over the fact that Judas, who betrayed him, I mean, he just couldn't get over it. I, I walked with him for three years, and Judas betrayed him. I mean, he just couldn't get over the fact that, that I mean, I knew him. I knew him. How could he do that? And so every single time, it's just a real sort of personal confession. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. John will say, with us. We met there all the time. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And this is a weird group. Some soldiers, those would have been Roman, and then some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They'd have been Jewish. And so you have this mix, and there's a word, I don't remember what it is, uh, that, that says whatever the, uh, the uh, a band of soldiers that had a very, it would be like a garrison. And a garrison, if you're in the military, you know means, y'all know, I mean like, you know, two 100 platoons or something like that. And you, you would know the number. It would mean about 600 men. Now, it's doubtful that they went and did that, but it was a big number. And so here it's setting up this dramatic scene for a disproportionate number of people. 
um, Romans and Jews alike coming to get an unarmed man. And so that that's the image that is very much trying to be sort of drawn out here. There's some tension that's really being drawn. So Jesus, um, so Judas, having procured this band of soldiers, hundreds of, of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were going with the lanterns and torches, thinking they had to sort of go and seek him out, look in the nooks and crannies or search up in the trees. The irony of, as we've been following, um, needing lanterns and torches to find the, uh, the light of the world. And then... Uh, uh, weapons to to uh, to confront the Prince of Peace. Um, again, that's all sort of a preaching point, but it's there. And so then the phrase, and then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, um, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. So he's definitely you know uh, conscious and aware, what you would call um, omniscience. Um, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him. Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost. I have lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father had given me? So we're going to move quick, quickly. Um, Jesus, knowing all that would happen, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And he says that twice. Um, I heard of a Bible study that started this week um, on the questions that Jesus asks. Now look, it just said, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, and then he asks the question, Whom do you seek? So obviously he's not asking the question as a reporter, trying to find that information. He knows the answer. So it's just that question that Jesus asks. And you can, it can go forth here. You know, the question to each one of us, Whom do you seek? Um, Christ is asking that. Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am he. Ego eimi. Where do we hear that? Back in Exodus. Um, uh, the confession of deity, from which we get the word Yahweh. Um, where Jesus, uh, where, where, where God reveals himself to Moses as I am. Um, and Yahweh, what we call uh, with the Old Testament in our Bibles where it says Lord God and sort of all small caps. You ever notice when it does that? That's where it says that's, that's Yahweh. That's where it would be. And, and it means where God spoke of himself in sort of the three tenses of I, I am, I uh, am, am continuing, and I always will be. It's kind of all contained in there. Uh, we then refer to him in the third person. He, he is... He always is, and he always will be. Um, and so Yahweh is the third person designation of God's self-disclosure as I am. And so when Jesus comes in, especially in the Gospel of John, and says, I am the bread, I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the light, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And he's sitting there, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus, and he goes, 
ego a me. He's confessing his deity. And what do they do? Um, remember, they're coming with lanterns and lights and torches, some two, three hundred people maybe. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, came forward and said to them. So he steps forward. They weren't, he wasn't running. Steps forward, total charge. Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he replied, I am he, ego a me. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. John still can't get over that. Et tu, Bruce? <laughs> he just wants to say that again and again and again. Um, and when Jesus said to him, uh, and when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. At the confession of deity, the power, as it were, went out, and they just sort of fell over. Um, and so he pulls it strong again. He asked him again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And the, the words there is very clear. It's in the imperative tense. The prisoner is ordering around the uh, his captors. Uh, and he, 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 he takes the charge. This was to fulfill the word. Um, and then Simon Peter, having a sword, because in Luke it says that, 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 that they were going to take two swords, um, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, um, likely intending to kill him. He wouldn't. Peter didn't have some sort of, you know, Inigo Montoya, you know, skill, <laughs> being able to cut off his ear. He was trying to kill him, and the guy moved, or he was just bad, and the sword was probably really short, one that could be hidden. He wanted to kill him, and he just missed. Uh, and the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given me? So we'll end on this. Just Peter, sweet, good, thank God for Peter. We, he's about to be the coward. You know, the passage after this is Peter's denying of him three times. Where in fact, he's sort of known, it seems, there's, this isn't quite clear, but it's strongly insinuated, which would make very dramatic that the, the, the servant whose ear he cut off, Malchus, sort of his family, because it's like the Malchus's cousin or niece, then finds Jesus, I mean, Peter in the courtyard and says, No, I saw you. You're the one who cut off my, uh, my, uh, my family man's ear. And so they were sort of aware of each other, which it's really interesting if they sort of were sort of family feud or family friends or whatever else. But anyway... Say what you want about his cowardice, and it was cowardly, but you know, I'm right with him, um, con- denying him three times. Uh, here, in the face of all of these soldiers, he steps forward with one sword as a fisherman, not a soldier, and says, I'll, 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 I'll do it. Let's go with him to die. Um, and he takes the, uh, the sword, and he cuts off the, the guy's ear. Now, again, Peter doesn't get it. Jesus immediately rebukes him. But it was a statement of great courage. Peter stepped forward and says, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, 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 I'll fight. But Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Uh, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And that's a very strong Old Testament image, the cup, the cup of wrath. Um, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Um, uh, the cup of wrath, which is coming, uh, fate, as it were, my tomorrow. Shall I not drink of this? Shall I not drink the cup? The echo of the synoptics. Um, if there's any way possible, let this cup, this tomorrow, pass from me. Um, there was no, no permission as such granted. Um, and Jesus uh, took it from there, uh, totally claiming Peter up, almost to the point where he 
what else could he do except deny him three times? He didn't know. He didn't know. Um, so I'll stop. That's uh, the story of Malchus and some of the and-then moments of God moving towards and producing fruit. Thoughts? Well. Ego eimi, in the in the presence of deity, um, Moses, take off your shoes for where you were standing is holy ground. Um, uh, when what's his name, the uh, the servant who was carrying the ark of the covenant, it's like Ur or something like that. Ug, you something, I can't remember what it is. Not Ur, it's a place. Um, maybe. Anyway, he touches the ark and he dies. Just boom. Just just the holiness, yeah. In the presence of, of God revealed. Um, boom. You know, when 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 God hides Moses just after the uh, the the declaration of I am, uh, and he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and only lets him see his backside, which nobody had ever done before. For if you see the face of God, you die. Um that was what was known implicitly. Your, really, your head just blows up. Um, it didn't. He saw God's backside, but he was marked. He had that radiance, and so he had to wear the veil from then forward. Um, just the idea of being prostrate, just, just absolutely going down, prostrate, uh, prostrate, prostrate, um, falling in front of uh, the revealed God. So is it just the disciples, or was it the no, that's the that's the, the that's the entourage, entourage. the soldiers, the soldiers and all that. So, yeah. What about of those whom you gave me? I have lost not one. Fulfilling the world. Yeah, he lost Judas. Or yeah, what does that mean? Part of the the idea. I mean, he, he says that you know this one will betray me at the Last Supper. Um, uh, and it fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. I can't remember where that is. Um, and he refers back to it. Um, he also says that elsewhere in the gospel, that uh, uh, in the prayers, in fact, right after, right before this, in the prayers for the church, us, that that uh, I have kept every one that you have given me to keep. Um, but not Judas. But that, that I have kept every one that you have given me to keep. So we're knocking on the door of, you know, how is one convinced? We're knocking on the door of, of election through the doctrine of grace, um, which we've talked about, which I'm happy to talk about, not in the next 10 seconds, but um, that's right there. I have not lost one of your sheep, um, the great shepherd says. Let me pray. Lord, for this uh, word, your word in John, um, give you thanks. Um, take my feeble words and correct me, Lord, uh, where I am wrong and strengthen your word where uh, it was spoken and heard in such a way that, that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.